Today's guest is Jacob Cooper. Jacob is a clinical social worker, certified Reiki master, and certified hypnotherapist who specializes in past life regression therapy. He's also the author of Life After Breath, How a Brush with Fatality Gave Me a Glimpse of Immortality, which shares his near-death experience and how he struggled to integrate the spiritual lessons that he learned. Jacob, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time and welcome. An honor to be on your program. You know, thank you for having me on. I've been watching your channel and following you, and it's great to now be on the other side of that screen and joining your great vision. So well, thank you. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you watching. Jake, a lot of my audience loves to hear about near death experiences. So can we please just start at the beginning of yours and you can kind of tell us what happened? Absolutely. Uh, to preface, I had my near-death experience as an infant at the age of three years old. Um, my near-death experience, when I speak from it, does not come out of a three-year-old body or the eyes of a three-year-old uh, and the personality and the external presentation to the world, uh, but rather it comes from the eyes of a, of a soul that goes well beyond the body as I experienced in those moments. And the soul was before and the soul was after. It was eternal. Had no number attached to it. It wasn't produced by the body or defined by it. It was something a lot deeper than just the surface of this story that I was writing at three, at the age of three years old in this body or learning. I had um, a, an upper respiratory infection at the time. I didn't know called pertussis or the generic term is whooping cough. And I went to a park with family friends uh, of ours, uh, and the family friends was a babysitter uh, of mine who had watched me and my siblings. And we, you know, would frequently go to parks, you know, like babysitters would take their kids, um, and uh, they took me and family member of mine, and and they took their kids too to the park just to have a normal regular day. Uh, you know, I speak and elaborate a little bit more about this. Um, the experience leading up to it in this kind of coincides with trauma is you remember surrounding events of the trauma, you know, before and a little bit after. And so within those moments, I reflect on it and able, I was able to remember that I was having a lot of kind of feelings about what was going to come and I couldn't quite put a finger on it. Uh, but I ignored this profound transformation that I knew was on the horizon. And as I got into the car, I, in the minivan, when they were driving us to the park, I noticed that my breathing was slowed down. But um, sometimes our, our mind and body are not really always connected. My mind just wanted to go and play in the park, and my body was like, all right, dude, you got to slow down. But um, my frontal lobe was uh, quite underdeveloped at the age of three, and I kind of just acted on impulse. And so I ignored all conventional wisdoms despite um, having nightmarish dreams, you know, before and just kind of feeling of something that I couldn't quite touch was on the horizon. And as I got in the car, I kind of noticed a familiar like vortex, vortex rather, that I kind of know what it was before in a sense that no matter what I could do, I just couldn't resist this almost vacuum of the soul, so to speak, you know, in a sense kind of taking me on a journey and uh, I've seen it before 
you know, in other lifetimes, you know, when I was about to go and was quite familiar. Uh, but I just wanted to live. I just wanted to have a fun time. So I opened up the doors in the park and I moved as fast as I could, despite the resuscitated breathing and slow down breathing. And as I was climbing up the ladder onto a slide, uh, I noticed my breathing was becoming a lot more difficult, um, a lot more barriers. And uh, with every ladder that I was climbing up, it's coming slower and slower. Then slowly at the top, I began to suffocate where there was no air at the top of the ladder on the slide. And you know, that's when everything in my body shut down due to the deprivation of oxygen that I was experiencing. And uh, I noticed that kind of like you go into a home in a power breaker and you shut down every part of the power breaker, my body due to the deprivation of oxygen and suffocation was, was shutting down too. And, you know, it was the most traumatic experience that I could possibly have not being able to breathe and, being in this weird incubation period where you're not here, you're not there, you're somewhere in this uh, intense e feeling like eternal suffering when you're when you're suffocated at such a young age. And in those next moments, I I noticed that I was able to look kind of like uh, at a disembodied third person viewpoint um, of at my body, and particularly I was drawn to my brain, and I was able to look at all the different. Uh, functionalities and different parts of my brain. Um, and I knew through this heightened awareness, a lot more of my body that a th any three-year-old or neurosurgeon or, or doctor probably wouldn't be privy to. And uh, I certainly do believe that we all indeed use a small percentage of our brains, uh, but it's hard to really dissect and understand the brain with the brain. And when I was able to be out of the state, I was able to really look at it from a different angle. But in looking at the brain, I noticed that it was deprived of oxygen. And then in the next moment, literally, I felt my brain literally just crack in half or snap in half, almost as if you take a plug in a wall and just yank it out and just like a crack. And so literally, my brain cracked in half. And so to speak, God came in, as the phrase would say. And after that, I was able to really race down this intensified tunnel and this vortex that I was seeing in the corner of my eye in the park was racing me down this tunnel. And I was going at some insane infinite speed and vibrating uh, in infinity, almost as if you go on a roller coaster on an upward trajectory and there is no stop to going higher and higher. And as I was going upwards and upwards, I noticed to the right side of my brain, I was able to connect to what I refer to. Um, as as the as the great light or the light, I I use the term God. You know, after I entered the tunnel, but it was to the right side of my brain, and this was the great palace of of light. And as I was seeing it, I almost had to shield myself because the light and the vibration was so overwhelmingly diametrically different than the three years old that I was living in the world. You know, it's a big deal if you take a fish and put it into a different body of water, but you take a human being and put it into the other side, you know, there was an acclimation and adjustment phase. Uh, so certainly it was quite overwhelming for myself and th this euphoria. Uh, but I was able to tune into the light and tune into the frequencies of, you know, angelic beings surrounding this light uh, at the palace. And the closest thing I could kind of explain to it that, this was the all that ever was and, and will be. This was the light that we all have and we're all forever 
connected to. Uh, you know, and then moments later, I was aware of, you know, it wasn't, let's say, Jesus Christ coming before me, and I was seeing, you know, Jesus. It was, uh, it was a different connection. It was more of um, a consciousness or a vibration of this light that I kind of knew was a was a Christ consciousness. Bear in mind, to preface, I grew up Jewish Orthodox, and that was never mentioned in my home, although G- Jesus, the life that he lived was kind of like a socialistic left-wing rabbi in Israel, right? You know, so he was kind of like a liberal socialistic rabbi, a reform rabbi, you would call it. Uh, died as a Jew, lived as a Jew, but it wasn't taught to me you know, in that life. And so it wasn't like he was coming before me, but this was a high pitch, a high vibration, a high expression of the divine light that I was experiencing. And moments later, I was able to look down on my body that was the top of the slide and was able to see to the right and left side of me, my male and female spiritual guides. And they're the most beautiful, magnificent being. And I was able to look at them directly and they helped my body to move down the slide. They literally threw their own force. I had no control of my body. My body was just you know, limp, and they pushed me down the slide. And then I was able to look at my body, you know, lying, you know, on the floor, you know, without anything really there. I wasn't in my body. I was literally able to see myself in my field, because I think, you know, when you do cross over, you still have an energy body that you carry. And I was able to feel my energy body to the side of my body. And I solely saw all the people who went with me at the park, you know, that day, and I was able to look into their auric fields and read more so much about them and look at their own spiritual guides too, and some of their life paths and have a greater understanding to, to them. And so uh, there was indeed a light between us that was eternal. Uh, and then, you know, I had a lot more and I elaborated a little bit more on this in the book, uh, but to keep it, uh, you know, in line with the podcast and formatting time, mm-hmm. And then just in that moment, I was able to see what I like to call a sea of angels or hundreds of thousands of angels literally surrounding myself and people at the park at that day, but but the surrounding. And these angels came in a color of brown or gold, and uh, they weren't white, right? Like they're kind of like how they're depicted. This was a brown gold color, but these angels were childlike angels or cherubim, as you would call them, you know, in, in the Bible. And uh they were not looking at me. I was looking at them and they were floating very peacefully, you know, in the field right in front of me. And they were really just sending energy. And uh, I just remember having distinct thoughts of skepticism as if I was hallucinating or making this up. This just seemed too good to be real. But it was a thin veil and a thin filter you know, of these of this angelic field, you know, surrounding me. You know, and then all of a sudden, Along with my spiritual guides, um, I was able to really connect with, you know, soul family members who I've incarnated and incarnated with, you know, throughout lifetimes. And, uh, you know, and they posed the question to me is, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay with us? And uh, or are you going to continue? And uh, basically, the question I said is, if I do continue, you know, I kind of had my own Jewish lawyer in me, you know, mm-hmm. let's make a deal. If I continue, what's going to happen? You know, I wanted some guarantees that uh, if I do stay that, you know, you know what's not going to hit the fan, it's going to be worthwhile because uh, this is pretty hard to turn down. And then all of a sudden, 
I was able to see uh, what I like to view as a life review, not just of this lifetime, but of previous carnations and going back to the thoughts, feelings, and deeds through the eyes of myself, but more importantly, the eyes of others. And I was able to span the globe of different carnations that I had throughout the globe and throughout times. And I was able to just go all over the globe in different lifetimes. But the most recent lifetime that I had was my last lifetime. I was uh, kind of like a teacher of, of students. And in those moments, I was able to see the faces of all the students that I taught. And I got very emotional seeing those students. Uh, but I also saw that I indeed took my own life in that life, last lifetime. And you know, I'd speak about this a little bit more in my book, but it was a bit of a hubris, but it's also a moment where I just panicked and I was around people and I just didn't see past, you know, the position that I was kind of stuck in and I just, you know, took my own life. And I kind of saw, you know, you say, you know, there was no time, but to kind of, for viewers listening, just in convenience, you know, future, what I would be doing, you know, I did see myself speaking about a lot of this stuff and coming into this awakening that was going to happen on the planet and speaking this message and being a harbinger of good news that uh, the soul is eternal and indeed we are divine beings and have a mission. But I was able to really see that when I spoke, it wasn't that I was better or superior to participants. I was just a messenger of, of this message and just a part of the collective energy and I was just no different than a participant. I was here to participate in this energy as just a vessel. And in that moment, I decided that, that the other side and you know the angelic field was great, but bringing the hereafter into this here now was, was a more important uh, calling to the times that I had. And that could wait, but I think really learning how to... Uh, thin the veils between the two worlds was a more important task at hand. And in those moments, I said goodbye to, to everyone and decided at that moment that I knew that I was going to be back in my body. And also a big pull was my parents, as you know, any parent could attest who unfortunately lost, uh, lost a child. That's, that's the most pressing, difficult loss that any parent can endure. Um, and, you know, I really saw that that not to sound self-grandiose, but that was um, hard for me to kind of kind of do. Mm -hmm. And those last moments, you know, I was able to kind of see myself going through the ambulance into the hospital bed and talk a bit about this in my book. There was two awareness of what was happening and what was happening to my body. But the last thought energy that I had was, you know, what's going to, not rather what's going to happen is how do I know that this will all come to fruition? And you know, the guidance of my guides was to watch your thoughts, your thoughts, your highways, and they are your own in the way weapon of this lifetime for, for good or bad. And you have high thoughts that coincide with your path. You manifest that path and you create that as thoughts do indeed become things. And in the moment those guides left and I was woken up on a hospital bed with my mother, who was quite distraught and emotional, who was there with me that day. And uh, I woke up and, uh, the rest is history, and uh, mm -hmm. my job is not to be defined of the narrative, the sequence of events, but to define the narrative, and that's what my book is about, and my work is about. So, <laughs> I have a few questions here. First of all, it really spoke to me when you said that you were going up the tunnel really fast, 
somehow that just kind of hit me. I don't know. Maybe I've experienced that before and I don't remember it. But, you know, when you go up and down, let's say in an airplane or anything, when you change altitude, you can feel it, especially going down like a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. If you can recall or not, when you were going up fast, did you also have the feeling of changing altitude, like going up or was it just going up? It was Mm -hmm. more just a visual going through a tunnel. It was a journey within. It was a journey to the inner deeper part of our own backyard that's never left us. And so technically you're going upwards and upwards, mm-hmm. but I think in a way we're distant from that point and at times this body and at times home. And so in a way you're not going anywhere far. You're going rather into your own backyard mm-hmm. you know, okay. and you're going back home. So it wasn't something really far out, but technically, you know, it was from my body, it was felt quite far out. But, you know, at the inner part of myself, it was the closest thing to home. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you ever go to Six Flags and go on the most powerful rides with the most torque and you just go at just some insane speed, when you think of infinity or or infinite, that's a very versatile term on the other side, right? Our our being is infinite Mm -hmm. just in terms of that we don't die. But also I look at infinite in terms of anything that you could want to experience as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so within our left brain, we don't know what infinity is in this finite reality, right? We're used to biochemical reactions towards that pizza or that cheeseburger or, mm-hmm. or if you're vegan, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of used to that. And there's kind of like um, a ceiling of how, of how good you could feel. And obviously people experiment to different kind of things, but still in the body, you know, there, there, there's always a ceiling and crossing over to the other side, there's no ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> there's no limit to how yeah. good you could feel, how high you could soar. And so to ask your question without being tangential, it's right here, right? The other side is right here and it's also everywhere. There's yeah, I- no possible limitation of it (laughs) i agree with you and i think that really you may be just changing dimensions and like even there could be another dimension and there's stuff all around us and beings all around us we're in a different dimension so we don't perceive them and they don't may not perceive us the direction traveling up down left right through a tunnel maybe doesn't even matter that just caught me for some reason when you said yeah to me it more felt yeah, I would say it was journey within, but it felt upward trajectory is mm-hmm. the direction that I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and people talk about vibrations. I think that was what I was experiencing was just this heightened vibration, mm-hmm. you know, and sound and frequency and mm-hmm. feeling and, and force. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a force. Uh, so I look at it as a very... You know, right in front of me, but also right inside of me too. All right. I wasn't quite clear on this did you encounter jesus or you encountered a christ-like energy can you um clear that up for me it was yeah to preface this there's um an external kind of interpretation that we learn you know of jesus i think through practice and religion and through some of our experience here in this lifetime um and so in my experience this was a connection that I had that's much different than people's interpretation of it in a sense that this was a very personal internal connection 
but it was a ray of frequency and feeling and sensation of warmth of you know an incredible high degree of frequency and expression and so in a sense you know i think you know looking at the life of jesus in a way from the little that i know i don't necessarily study the interpretation but i i try to have an inner dialogue and inner connection but you know in a way i think a lot of that was to inspire us that whatever was in the life that Jesus had was also inside of us too, is to empower us. It wasn't just to be this torch that we looked at in awe, but rather send that ignite us about the possibility that we have inside of us. The kingdom was indeed within. Mm -hmm. And so um, I look at us as all as expressions of this light, of this frequency. And within each and every lifetime, we come to a deeper knowing, a deeper connectivity to the expression of the divine that we are, Mm -hmm. you know? So, but that was a very incredibly high vibration and feeling and sensation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was quite euphoric, yeah. to say the least. This happened to you when you were three. No. Did you remember this during your life, or did you find out about it later? Because I note that you're a hypnotherapist. Like, did someone else give you hypnotherapy, and then you recounted mm-hmm. the experience? Mm-hmm. I, you know, if you take a beach ball and you try to bury it under the, wa- you know, the water. Uh, throughout this experience, obviously I was very changed and some, you know, through the, you know, brain trauma that I had through suffocation, you know, in preschool, there was a great light coming right directly through my brain. And so I was very tuned into the other side and had a lot of experiences, but this was very much buried inside of me. I, I didn't really go publicly around talking about it in a sense that, words uh, weren't limiting and I had an awareness through different experiences that people didn't have this. And so I really kept this close within. It took a lot, you know, I kind of see our development as inner beings with an outer representation. And it takes some times for the outer to find symmetry and parallel with what's within. And I think that's what each carnation is about is learning how to live from the in to the out. Mm-hmm. And the more connected we are to the in to the out, the more reflective of who we are and our life's purpose and our true nature. And so it took me, I would say around 20 years uh, to make some degree of sense of it. Um, it's, I, I speak about this in my book. Um, throughout my life, I was not ruminating about this or obsessing about it. It was always something kind of, you know, in the background, kind of like, you know, for instance, with psychic energy, you're having a conversation with someone, you're not obsessing about them, but there's this kind of underlying, you know, frequency and underlying, you know, kind of dialogue happening too. And so sometimes that that dialogue would be very low and I wasn't always aware of it. And sometimes that would be heightened depending on the degree of what I was going through and through moments of stress and difficulty I was able to tap into that a lot more. And I talk about this in my book, Uh, but it wasn't until, uh, you know, around my later teens, early twenties, when I fully started making sense of it. Uh, The biggest turning point was uh, a book that someone gifted me uh, by an author by the name of Betty Eady or Betty Eady, depending how you pronounce it. And Mm -hmm. she wrote a bestseller called Embraced by the Light. Um, And so my godmother uh, gave me this book, gifted me this book, and I actually have it in my shelf in my other place. 
but uh, her name and the date that she bought the book. But uh, reading Betty's book, I was able to have a lexicon and a vocabulary behind what I had and a universality behind it. I wasn't able to put a label or diagnosis and I felt quite alone in what I had. And so reading Betty's book was a double-edged sword in the sense that um, it gave me a diagnosis. It gave me a label. It gave me an understanding, but also took a little bit of that self-grandosity of the experience where I had a monopolization of it that I just held within. And I'm like, okay, I'm not that, not that special that people have had this. This isn't something so unique. And then slowly I started learning about this and I learned a little bit about IONS out in Durham and what they were doing. And so the universality of it helped, but I would say my biggest angel in my life was this person who gave me this book as well as Betty Mm -hmm. and her book uh, that helped me. And that inspired me to write this book for someone who Mm -hmm. might have the experience and not know exactly how to label it in language terms. And for me, it was like this big thing, you know, that I had inside. And, Mm -hmm. you know, once you put a, a label on it, you're like, Oh, you know, this is what I had. And so that leads to the ability to integrate it easier to other people and thus helping them out and helping yourself out too. Do you feel like the experience thinned the veil for you? And if so, do you feel like you have contact to the other side if need be? Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't practice as a full-time, you know, psychic or medium, but in my healing work as a Reiki practitioner, um, I do tune in you know, pretty easily to person's energy field and what's happening you know, as well as I develop a keen sense of clinical intuition within my psychotherapy work, we're in a sense that I'm not going to go, okay, your uncle Joey's here and this is what's happening, you know, but if something, someone might, might tell me something, I might ask, you know, kind of a question that goes beyond, well, the surf, well beyond the surface of what a person is, you know, uncovering to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say a lot earlier in life, my intuition was a lot sharper. And I think most kids are. Uh, but what I would say also is the more relaxed I am, particularly my brain, as I, expel- as I experienced as just the filter between the two worlds, mm-hmm. um, the more connected I, I am. And so through deep in practice, you know, meditation and you know, kind of self-hypnosis that I do, I'm able to connect um, easier. But mm-hmm. there's one area that I'm very strong with. Um, particularly having a near-death experience is I think different psychics and mediums have different strengths regarding the clairs, but also regarding some of their gifts and specialties. I mean, for me in life, I always had a keen sense as to when someone was about to go or pass on. Hmm. I think part of it was having this direct experience, you know, with, with going. And, and so oftentimes I keep that voice within. And then when I see it, it's like, annoying because it's like why didn't i say anything or do anything but i think everyone has their path and sometimes people are not meant to hear something but i throughout throughout my course of my life it's like i see things in front of me and i'm like i saw that i heard that voice and i ignored it so mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. Uh, that that intuitive sense and that mediumistic capability is is there and something that i as an adult i'm trying to fine-tune you know, for personal, professional basis. Have you been able to contact spirit guides or angels after the experience? Mm-hmm. As a child, I, I had a very good relationship, you know, with, with spirit guides and they would come to me. But, you know, to this day, in the moment, I, I have to be transparent. Uh, I, I, I connect to them. 
I connect to their feelings. I connect to their messages at times. But the one frustrating element is I don't connect to their actual names. My mm-hmm. and my near-death experience, I knew instantaneously their names. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one detail that I, you know, I'm working on. But the reason why I say that is people get caught up in specifics. And if everything is 10 out of 10, not matched, if you don't know their names or every past life or everything about them, then it disvalidates it. And I say if it's helpful, if it's resourceful, if it feels real, tap into it and eventually you evolve that and it grows. And so for me, I'm relearning, you know, how to reconnect to some of the things that I experienced in those moments. And I think that makes things exciting. You know, every day is an opportunity to get closer to something that I didn't lose. That's always there inside of myself and trying to find ways to integrate it, you know? So. Since you're a hypnotherapist, I, I'm speculating that you may have friends or colleagues who are also hypnotherapists. And if so, have you ever had one of them just regress you to see if you could pick up anything else from the experience that you can't remember it currently? Yeah. That's, that's a good situation. I, I haven't been regressed to my own NDE. Mm. Um, I, I think that would be a cool idea, you know, and I also think for other people, that's, that's a good experience. Um, you know, I've done past life regressions and with each regression that I have, you just uncover different details that you just were not aware of but regarding some of the age regression to, to a traumatic experience that I had, because I do view the first half of it as quite traumatic. Um, you know, it's something that I, that I want to think about in a way. Um, it's, it's hard for me to go there directly. You know, I'm not ready to go into the deep into hypnoidal state in a sense that I kind of am aware of, you know, that it's hard. There is a hard part of the suffocating part, yeah. you know, and so I prefer to kind of go off of that within memory and thought. Uh, but I'm sure within time, you know, when I'm ready, I'll, I'll probably do that. You know, I think that would be helpful, but I think you have to kind of be ready. And so for me, I... I'm sure going back to that via hypnosis will uncover things that, you know, see, I remember a good percentage of it, but within any near-death experience, there's parts that you experience that you're aware of, but you might not be able to verbalize in a way you know, as, as good. And so re-experiencing that on a deeper level would be helpful. You know, <laughs> Are there any negative things from this experience that you have to manage in your life? Yeah. I think looking back on it, and this is really in my book, I, I, I was quite a difficult child. Hmm. You know, my parents would be the first one to tell you I was in and out of uh, you know, a psychologist's office and not to pathologize mental health. I think that's a great strength of a client. But in my case, um, I was on a cocktail of medications I had a very difficult time focusing. I was very defiant. Uh, I had a lot of behavioral outbursts. And I think part of that was had to do with the fact that there was something so deep inside of me that I just couldn't express, Mm. you know, and that manifested itself into anger, Mm. into kind of rebellion and frustration about how angry I was in a sense that I had this experience and I just saw a lot of people around me who were just blinded to it and forgot about it. And no matter what I did, I couldn't shake them and kind of tell them, 
I think that part was hard. It's just how limited the world that I was around and how I just had to suppress and repress that part of me to fit in. You know, otherwise it wasn't going to work exactly because I had assignments in front of me. I had to survive. Right. You know, and so I had to learn how to be in this world and not dominant in that world. And so I, I think that was a hard part. And also the trauma that came from suffocating was something that looking back on it, I didn't quite kind of put one or two together of how traumatic it was. I think people try to emphasize the euphoric parts of near-death experiences. And I say this in every interview, there's not enough, at least dialogue or conversation, you know, about, you know, the traumatic events. Death itself is nothing to fear. But I, I would say though, that, you know, periods before death, as we know it, or as I, I refer to it as rebirth. Yes, when you're experiencing it in the body, that could be tr- quite scary and quite difficult. Sure. And once you get out of that, you're like, whoa. Yeah. But uh, that, that process of suffocating and stuff like that while in the body was, was no picnic. That was that was really scary. Sure. I don't want to sugarcoat it or lie. I think some of my guests have expressed kind of the same viewpoint that, you know, the actual dying part, you know, is, is, Mm -hmm. you know, is pretty traumatic. Did your family members not believe your story or just think that you were imagining something? Well, I really didn't speak to my parents until around a couple of years ago about this. Mm. I kept it very much under the rug I went public before I really spoke to my parents about this. Uh, and the reason being is it's, it's hard to talk to people that you know who grew up with you. And especially it was a tense dynamic to kind of all of a sudden talk about these things. So I wasn't ready. For me, it was a lot easier to talk to a random stranger about it than kind of people who you grew up like this. And part of it is almost like it almost felt like too late to talk about it. It's like, whatever, just move on. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I did it is I was ready at a point to kind of obviously before while writing my book a little bit before to kind of talk to them about it just to maybe you would give them a deeper angle into you know why things were the way that they were and have a different vantage point. Um, I, I found it to be helpful. I found it actually to be surprisingly helpful. It, it was hard in a sense that they come from a religious Jewish background. And some of these things are not, you know, fitting in their belief system. But mm-hmm. despite that, they, they've been very supportive, very open, uh, you know, interested, you know, in it. And there's even elements that blew my mind. You know, for instance, in my head, I, in interviews without even talking to them, I didn't even believe that it was possible to remember this stuff at the age of three. I said, maybe four, maybe five, you know, end of years aren't really into ages. And, you know, my mother told me that it was September 1993. I was three years old when I had this experience. She told me, you know, more of the details from her angle that kind of fit a lot of things that I saw. And so it, it was helpful to kind of put some of their impact on it and what they experienced too, and to get the other side of it. Um, and so that, that was pretty cool. Uh, and also I learned that was bright around the day of atonement, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm Jewish. So it's kind of like you're going before God and you're trying to clean your slate and, you know, who will live, who will die kind of thing. And, uh, 
I experience a different kind of, uh, you know, dynamic with, with God than kind of what I was kind of brought up in, <laughs> you know, there was no judgment. It was, it was just pure love, you know? Yeah. I was going to so. ask that. I was going to get to that. And you kind of got to that is how did this affect your traditional Jewish upbringing, especially even going, you know, yeah. to the synagogue? It was tough. You know, I think growing up Jewish, especially within my family, uh, there's a lot of pressure to accept the faith in a sense that, you know, when you come from ancestors who were in the Holocaust who fought to preserve their faith and they would do anything to preserve the Sabbath, the kosher dietary rules when they weren't allowed to in, in concentration camps. And here you are, you know, growing up and you're throwing away that, you know, yeah. there, there's a lot of pressure that I grew up with to preserve and respect it. Mm. You know, certainly having grandparents who fought in World War II and fought off anti-Semitism you know, so that's something I was brought into. So there was this pressure that came into it where it's like, if they can do it, why can't you? Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I was very rebellious in a sense that I I didn't like the laws or the rituals, you know, all that kind of practices because it spoke to a different interpretation, you know, of God of, in a sense to me, looking back on it, it was God that was very much of this world, you know, versus a God that I experienced that was very diametrically different than, you know, kind of interpretation of a God, you know, what's the term, you know, a man in God's image, right? Mm -hmm. You know, not God in man's image kind of thing. So it's very much a part of this world, you know, a God who was a man, a God who was jealous, a God who was transactional, God who you needed to follow certain steps to kind of get to that. And so it was a much different connection a dynamic than what I had experienced. Like, two couldn't be further diametrically different. <laughs> yeah. No. I had another guest that's a Jewish man and he encountered Jesus in his NDE. Right. And I have, a, I have yeah. to go back to watch the story, but I think he even may have became Christian afterwards. I believe it was Dr. Pen Van Lummel that said this. It's a cardiologist that did a lot of NDE research. And I believe that, you know, Atheists see spirit beings, Christians see Jesus, Buddhists mm -hmm. see Buddha, Muslims see Muhammad. So it's kind of common to see, you know, whatever your faith is, who you would see, right? Yeah. I find it interesting. I mean, it doesn't really matter who you see, I would think. I mean, it's probably all kind of representation yeah. of, of God and of spiritual beings. Oh, you know, I would say that you connect to your book and not just a page of your book. Mm -hmm. You connect to a bigger part of your book. And when that happens, you know, you're able to really connect to much bigger than this interpreted story that you define your life as. And I think when you cross over the other side, you're not limited in how you see world, you know, and at times it's hard for people to really connect to that. A lot of that has been boxed down or, or forgotten. And, I think so much of this, when you go into it, you connect to it beyond just this body, beyond just this page, and mm -hmm. you connect to things beyond this world, beyond this page, and it's mm -hmm. it's it's a lot more than just this reality and this story that we're living. Right. Yeah. yeah. What would be really interesting is if you could remember or not, because you saw a past life. Imagine if you saw yourself in another life, and you were Christian, or you were atheist, or you were. A, a Buddhist monk, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I think I talk a little bit about that a bit more in my book, particularly, 
you know, I do connect to a lot of Eastern Asian kind of past lifetimes and, you know, mm. throughout my lifetime, I was very gravitated, you know, to, to different practices and mm. people of that culture, you know, as well as, you know, uh, indigenous kind of Native American, mm. you know, lifetimes that I had. And uh, I was able to also have my experiences validated through different psychics and mediums time and time again, mm. particularly of that last lifetime without me saying a word. Uh, and this is before I was doing any kind of interviews hmm. where they could pick that up, hmm. uh, you know, so it was pretty validating. Uh, but I do think in a way, the last lifetime that I had where I kind of put more fear over faith, you know, I think in a way my near-death experience must have been something as a part of my soul that I need to experience within this hmm. lifetime. Hmm not just for myself. I don't believe you're just living your life for yourself, but to other people. And that whole allegorical reference of that darkness at the end of the tunnel, which not everyone experienced, actually very few people do. It's more of kind of like a Western phenomenon of people's depiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think the media obviously enhances that. Uh, but again, that's what I, the verbiage and what I kind of experienced. But I think really my line and work as a mental health practitioner and within my book, so much of the book was to be able to understand what's inside of us is always greater than what's in front of us. And I think if we're able to hold on to that, you know, it will help us to kind of move and persevere in the face of hardship to translate that to resilience and generate hope, you know, past mm-hmm. the pain. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do believe spirituality without practicality is not um, resourceful. And so within my next book that I'm actually working on and parts of this book, my big goal is to utilize this and find ways to integrate the hereafter into here now a little bit easier for readers and and viewership of my work. What kind of tools do you recommend non-NDE people to utilize to help themselves? Well, I don't want to make this a book sales pitch, but first of all, read my book. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's a good book and the reason why i say that is my book um is not just a pigeonhole near-death experience book i didn't want it to be that case the reason that it's the case is i know how isolating it could be for people to listen to near-death experiencers and it's just so easy for us to talk about all these things because we have these experiences you know but for people who haven't had that it's very difficult and so my book i get quite vulnerable and quite honest and quite human, I do that not um, in a sense to just have a vendetta or have a personal journal or pat myself on the back kind of thing. I do that to find people to be able to relate to the experience so that they could be empowered to take ownership of their own experience. The second thing is, you know, changing how we see ourselves. say this in every interview, the moment we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Wayne Dyer's quote. That deals with the self. The more that we're able to see ourselves as a lot more than just this moment, this body, this lifetime, and have a knowingness with that, the more likely we are to persevere past experience and utilize that as a tool of resiliency, as well as to take away the ideological framework of life happening to us, the victimization of that, but rather for us. And that really translates to this life school that people could be a part of and that deals with, especially right now in these moments, in a way it gives people a little bit more superpowers to handle 
what they're being faced with. But I also think neuro-linguistic programming is important. And why I say that is, or, or cognitive restructuring in a sense that, and I do this with a lot of my clients, it's anytime we're going through suffering that feels permanent, you know, getting back into, you know, home base, you know, much like in mindfulness, right? When we're kind of taken away or we're off kiltered, getting back into center, I think the ultimate center point is coming back to that eternal awareness, and being able to remind ourselves of that place that we can never be hurt nor damaged. It's, it's only fleeting and temporary and, and things pass. Uh, but unfortunately, if we allow life to live for us and we don't live for life, it, it could drive us on a, on a wild ride. Mm. So, <laughs> What lessons have you learned that speak to the times? Well, the title of my book, is titled Life After Breath. And I chose that title, obviously, because I suffocated and still experienced life and all parts of my body wasn't there and still experienced euphoria. But, you know, that's again specifics because I know people have a lot of different heightened viewpoints with respect uh, where they're holding. But uh, my experience in 1993 of suffocating from an upper respiratory infection you know, speaks to what's happening now with, with this other you know, virus happening, highly contagious virus, just as what I experienced. You know, and, and some of the suffocation, literal suffocation that people have, or the metaphorical suffocation that people might experience where they're just out of breath, out of wind, out of hope. You know, and a lot of people are experiencing a lot of fatigue on their multidimensional you know, vantage points of their being. And so my goal is is to find ways to generate pain past generate hope past the pain through this book to be a harbinger of good news that we are eternal we have a purpose we have a connection past this pain and we're not just here to suffer but rather to really tap into that point and it deals with a lot of life's surface I think a lot of life's uh, purpose I think life's purpose oftentimes comes from the life surface you know the life surface of how we see ourselves how we view ourselves connecting from that personality standpoint, but not the soul's standpoint, not the soul's purpose. And I want to give people keys back to their car of driving the soul and not just the personality, not just this limited story, not just this pain as a driving point and force. Do you think spirit and soul are the same thing and they just kind of use the words interchangeably? Or do you think there's a difference between spirit and soul? It's a really good question. Give <laughs> me a moment. That's um, okay. I would say the spirit or a spirit is under the umbrella of a soul. Mm. I think the soul is a lot more encompassing and expanded of a term than the spirit. I think you know, spirits could come within that personality of a lifetime. I think the soul kind of speaks to more of our entirety of our existence, you know, versus uh, depiction in a, in, in a way of a spirit. Um, and I think the soul is more of a unifying component. I think the spirit is more of like individual kind of thing. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think the soul is more of a unifying concept you know, from the macro and the micro, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like that answer because I've kind of struggled with that question and 
It's a very good question. And it, yeah, I, I would assume maybe many people do, but yeah, make, I like your answer. Uh, you know, maybe while you're incarnated on earth, just your conscious energy could be, you know, your spirit. But then once you leave and into your, your back, you know, in home or wherever you want to say you are, you're back mm-hmm. to, your, to your soul of your lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, no, as Gary would say, the speed of the soul. Yeah. But, you know, and also, you know, one of the things that I learned, it's what it's like to be like on the other side. You know, because when I was kind of suffocating, I was trying to communicate with people at the park that I'm fine. I am more than fine. I I am on cloud nine. Feel bad for you, dude, but I'm okay. But, you know, I, I could understand a little bit of what people go through on the other side where they're talking, you know, they're trying to listen, but they're up here and sometimes awareness is down here. And so they try to, and I tried to bring myself down and I still, they couldn't hear the pitch or the frequency. And so I speak about this in a little bit of my next book, which is more, this book is more of a rapport and engagement and inspirational kind of firsthand story. My next book is more of a guidebook. Um, kind of like a, the steps up the Jacob's ladder, no pun intended with my experience having to happen on a ladder coincidentally with the name of Jacob, but that's more of a tool book and a guidebook, you know, to integrate these experiences to everyday life for experiencers and non-experiencers. But I, I think really it speaks to our own vibrations. And uh, I think a lot of people get very uh, kind of earth-based in how they integrate with the spirit realm in a sense that it's, a macho thing. I have to sweat. I have to work. I have to do all these things. And I speak about this in some of my other transformative experiences. It's the easiest thing that you can do. You just have to take away a lot of the weight or, or kind of like this sensation that you have to become something, but you know, you're just reducing all the things that you think that you are to finding everything that you've always been connected to. Hmm. So sometimes you have to lose everything to find that deeper part of you. And that's what happened when I suffocated, you know, and everything was lost and everything was also found. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting way of putting that. Yeah. Um, all right. So you are already working on your next book. Do you have <laughs> anything else that you're working on that you want us to know about? Any other projects? You know, I try to take one step at a time. Um, right now, the project I'm trying to work on is to make an audio recording of my book and mm-hmm. get in the right studio. Reason being, a lot of people have vision impairments or they have difficulty reading someone's book. So that speaks in parallels with, it keeps me up at night, you know, thinking of that person that I could have reached, I could have spoken to, and and I didn't. So I'm on an all out, you know, kind of basis to to make the most out of this book and reach most people. Because uh, certainly I know we benefited from picking up that book in a dark moment in our lives and having a light bulb turned on. And my book is about that. It's about paying forward what I was provided from an author like Betty 80 mm-hmm. and giving that back to someone else. And you just never know, you know, mm-hmm. what podcast or book that person will write from you doing that. Yeah. But I do believe that we live in a world that's that's challenged but it's also an opportunity for us to reach people in different ways. And mm-hmm. I think my next project is to find yes, another book, but also kind of like a meditation book, mm-hmm. um, a meditation audio tape rather, where I'm able to provide people with kind of like a guided meditation of a heavenly, 
kind of meditation to integrate into their lives and just to provide as many tools and modalities as I possibly can, uh, you know, for people, because I think when the winds are the strongest, we need our foundation as, as rock solid as we can. And that's what I try to provide. Besides <laughs> podcasts, are you doing any public speaking? You know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time to have a book launch, obviously with the times, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly, you know, with the health guidelines permitted, going on tours and doing public speaking. Oh, yeah, that's, right. I forgot. that's something that I was doing religiously before, uh, you know, probably since 2015, 2016, you know, speaking internationally, nationally, um, something I would love to do. Um, you know, one thing cool that I'm doing is, is book clubs. I have one for any interested reader happening this upcoming Thursday. You could contact me, Jacob Cooper, LCSW on Facebook or um, through my website. You could email me. I'm doing a book club free of charge. And I'm going to be, you know, answering and fielding questions. Uh, you know, I'm writing some, I have some articles and some local articles, you know, being written about myself. Um, I'm trying to find ways to kind of maximize technology to reach more people. I might be 30 years old, but I'm really bad with figuring that out. So mm. my goal is to, div- to reach as many people as we can that I might not have been able to reach had I done this in person. And so, yeah. I view this situation as a double-edged sword mm-hmm. kind of you know thing with 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 a lot of potential. So yeah. I'm trying to find ways to, to maximize this technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So for people to contact you, what is your? It's best to contact you on Facebook. I have a website. Okay. What's your website? That's usually a really good way. So my website is jacoblcooper.com. It's jacoblcooper.com www.jacobelcooper.com. And there, you know, everything is there. You can click on the email icon, boom, you know, Instagram icon, boom, my Facebook page is there. Uh, If you're interested in a regression session, mindfulness session, uh, you know, following my monthly Facebook live events, which I have one scheduled uh, within the next week or two. I have to uh, open up my uh, planner top of my head. Um, it's actually going to be on 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time um, on January 18th. So I'm going to be having one then. And then, you know, in February, I'm going to be having one on February 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So every month I have a different topic at, ha- at hand uh, that somewhat relates to my book, but at times not. So it's kind of like a monthly mentoring, you know, free of charge community event uh, that, I, that I host. Oh, that's great. So, uh, where can we get your book? Is it only through your website, or is it on Amazon and Google <laughs> yeah. Books and all that kind of you stuff? Could, yeah, the, if you go my website, there's a there's at the top of the toolbar, Life After Breath. You click that, and uh, you know you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Indie House, I think has it, uh, Bookshop. Uh, I mean, the best place probably is Amazon. That's that's the easiest kind of way it kind of seems. Mm-hmm. Obviously, buying the book is great, sharing it is great, reviewing is great. But um, you know, usually Amazon is the way to go. You could find it there. And, uh, you know, I think it's a helpful book for, for anyone who's interested in learning more of what's inside of us and a little bit more engagement with, with who we are as it can relate to, to purpose and evolution in this lifetime. All right. Um, before we wrap it up here, can you give us one last message? One last message. Um, I will say that my work 
is not something that I own. My story is not something that I own. Much the same with you. Um, I think we all have our stories, but our job in a way is to not judge that story, but to allow that story to be told to others. As long as we're telling our stories and our stories are being told, we can never truly die. Uh, ancient Egyptians used to build up their whole lifetimes, you know, to have their legacy and to prepare for the afterlife. The good news is within these platforms, if you have something to share, you just never know who you might reach and who you might teach. And this is not something that we own, you know, but our job is to ignite and empower the people with their stories. And if this touched you, feel free to share this story. But more importantly, my goal is for this to touch a deeper part of you, um, to remember something inside of you that is much more than just this body and this current time. And that's the hope throughout this book is for you to take ownership of your own spirituality and, and, and a part of you so much more than you ever held on to or thought within this lifetime. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that message, Jacob. And thank you for giving me so much time today. I appreciate it. I wish you massive success on this book, on your next book, and maybe even on your next book. I'm just putting that out there for you. <laughs> yeah. One rung at the ladder at, t- at a time. Yeah. <laughs> That's my philosophy. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's an honor being with you. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much and have a great evening. You too. God bless. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye.